Wanda, I don't presume to know what you're feeling, but I would like to know, should you wish to tell me, should that be of some comfort to you? What makes you think that talking about it would bring me comfort? Oh, see, I read that... Uh, the only thing that would bring me comfort is seeing him again. It's a way of washing over me again and again. It knocks me down, and when I try to stand up, it just comes for me again. And I can't. It's just gonna drown me. No. No, I won't. <laughs> How do you know? Well, because it can't all be sorrow, can it? I've always been alone, so I don't feel the lack. It's all I've ever known. I've never experienced loss because I've never had a loved one to lose. But what is grief? If not love, persevering. Welcome to the 42 Podcast, where we discuss life together, looking for answers to life, the universe, and, well, everything else. Here are your hosts, Rob and Lindsay. Hello, on this beautiful Saturday morning, Robert. See? I shut up. I let you go first. I'm done fighting. (laughs) Good morning, Lindsay. It's a gray day out here, so I can't say it's quite beautiful yet, but... It's a morning. Yes, the sun is coming up. There's no there's no snow on the ground yet. Are you sure? Because you're wearing like three layers over there. I am cold. I'm cold this morning. <laughs> it's like yeah. in that awkward place of, is it cold enough to start fires and go through all that hassle already? Or should we just keep suffering a little longer in the cold? <laughs> So wait, do you guys heat your house through like a wood furnace or something like that? We have two wood stoves and they burn wood. And then later on in the winter, when we're, when we need the stove every day, we, we burn, we burn coal. So we cut down our own trees a lot, use our own wood. Plus, uh, my mother-in-law has a workshop out out there, and she works in the winter through the winter, so she has to heat her workshop with wood. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. It is, but there's a beauty to that. I'm actually a yeah. little bit jealous. Not gonna lie, because that's yeah. Dead of winter when I was a young man, my grandfather used to take. Initially, it was the Boy Scout troop I was in, and then that troop was a little extra. Yeah, we'll just say a little extra at times. 
there was a rule at the camp when the Boy Scouts would go where it's, okay, if you're talking after lights out and you get three warnings and, and it persists, you go on a two-mile hike. Doesn't matter what time, you go on a two-mile hike. And my grandfather had never had to enact that rule until my Boy Scout troop. So that was like the year that it was, you know what, we're done taking the Boy Scouts. And so he started taking just the guys in our family. And we'd spend the weekend up there. And it was just, it was a rustic old hunting house where there was no plumbing. There was no water. There was no heat, no electricity. So everything was wood and all of the, the fireplaces were, you know, you'd start them with wood. And then when they got hot enough, we started shoveling coal into them. Mm-hmm. And that was just neat to sit there and watch as as the coal was burning, as the gases would escape. and Yeah. There's something about the heat of a wood fire that's like, ah, oh, so comforting. Well, and... Yeah, we did this in the dead of winter. We do this in like February. So this was in northwestern PA. So it could be, you know, zero degrees outside, but inside was like 110 just because of the fires. And, you know, you'd still have three or four layers on and it would be comfortable. There was Mm -hmm. something to that. We live up on the second floor and um, there's no heat up here. But the heat from the stoves downstairs mm-hmm. and, and like a chimney comes through our living up through our living room. It's like that's enough to heat up here. It's a, it's pretty amazing how warm it stays up here just from the heat down there. Pretty cool. I know. Sorry. you. All of this has like brought a flood of fond memories back all at once. Just of, of that camp. It was called Penny Pine. And uh <laughs> I'll tell you what, those are some pretty neat experiences as a young man, just being able to go up there and spend the time that we did. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it was. It was. A, that was the first time I officially drove on the road, was Camp Penny Pine. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was terrifying, because the road was nothing but, like, this dirt road. And come winter, nobody treated it, nobody plowed it, so it had, like, two inches of packed ice and snow. And we had to go and do a water run down to the spring, and Dad tosses me the keys and says, Okay, we're going for a drive. Cool. I was 15, and, you know, there's like this... Felt like a cliff, but it was probably just a sloping hill on one side, and farm and pasture and trees and forests on the other going to the spring. And I white-knuckled that steering wheel, but (laughs) I learned. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Wow. All right. I was not prepared for that. That was a weird blast from the past. But thank you again for that. Yeah, I think you needed a little of that this morning. Uh, yeah, it's been a weird week. Weeks. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, background conversation. You and I, in talking what this episode would be, we're going to touch on grief and stress and some spiritual stuff i think that's this is us talking about life talking through pieces of life that we've been wrestling with in the past couple weeks because you and i have both we keep in touch throughout the week and we you know how's life going how we handle what's going on in our lives and understand that it's good to have a friend to talk about these things with absolutely 
you know, I, I have to admit this. Knee-jerk reaction, I always want to uh, push into how are you doing. There's that defense of, well, I, I want to I know how you're doing first. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. So, thank you for being a good friend and pushing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a weird, a weird two, two and a half weeks. You know, you, you knew this, but my one dog, we had to, we had to put him down. He, he was old. He had congestive heart failure, and it went from a point of being manageable to, no, this is it. I mean, he was he was retaining water, and he he was a little dog. He was a Chihuahua Dachshund, mm-hmm. so he was just this little guy. And and my dad came up with the best way to describe him. He's the cutest, ugly thing you have ever seen. <laughs> right. He just looked like he. He looked like a Frankenstein kind of dog, where it was those two breeds should not be put together in that way. But he was really cute. <laughs> and he was he was my dog. He was my bud. I picked him, and, you know, he was a reaction to my, my childhood, where my mother had old English Mastiffs, and I wanted a little dog. <laughs> so I got oh, a yeah. Cheweenie. A Cheweenie! <laughs> That's, that's, that's what, one of the names they're called, a Cheweenie. Cheweenie. I love it. He was cute. He was a great dog. I loved him. But we had to put him down. And I am I love having dogs. I really do. But I hate that final visit. Mm. And when when we've had to go through that, it's it's me who does... The final visit with the animals. And we, we've got a great veterinarian where we're at. I mean, they are top-notch. We love them. They are excellent when the animals have been sick. And they are very graceful with these final visits. But they're never easy. No. And that's just been... It's adjustments. It's, it's grief. It's... He was my dog, but my daughter also really attached to him as well. And, yeah. you know, he, he was the kind of dog who would hide under a blanket or cuddle up with you. And just, he wanted to be warm. He didn't want to be pet, but he wanted to be with you. So, weird adjustments with that. And the the moments of grief that stick in, in love of a pet. And I don't know. It, oh, yeah. What what pets do you have? Have you had? Well, Colby and I got a dog together before we were married. In fact, we had only been dating for like two months, so it was like, whoa. Wow. That's a big wow. commitment. Yeah. It was almost weird. It's like, okay. <laughs> I got Melinda at Chinchilla when we were dating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Her, her name was Cricket, and she was Aww. a mixed breed, and, um... His sister's dog had puppies, which is really why we got one, because it was free. And she was really pretty. She was a little bit of German Shepherd, a little bit of Border Collie or something. So she was not as hard looking as a German Shepherd. She was soft looking and sweet. And I really liked her. I really liked her a lot. But a couple years into probably just like a year and a half, two years into being married, her kidneys started to fail. Oh. She wasn't eating, and she just got bad really fast. So one morning, 
Colby was supposed to be going into a job interview, and I was going to go with him, but we couldn't find Cricket. So we're calling for Cricket, we're calling for Cricket, we're calling for Cricket. Colby's all dressed up, and it occurred to me to look under the house. So yeah. I look under the house, and she's under the house, and she's shaking, and she won't move. And I, so I, I went under there, and I held on to her, and I gently took her out, and... You just knew, like, oh, this isn't good. I held her while well, we took her to the vet. We didn't end up going to the interview at all. And um, yeah, she didn't make it. And it was really sad because it was kind of like our dog. I mean, like yeah. a special, special animal to us. And I think that's kind of the last time I really attached <laughs> to an animal. I just, it just hurt too much. The summer before Melinda and I got engaged... Her childhood dog, Coco, got sick, and I, I helped with that. I I helped my mother-in-law and Melinda, and I was there with Linda at the vet for that final visit. And it's it's always hard. It really is. You know that the uh, <laughs> the first oh it had to be six months of of my marriage when Melinda and I got married and when we had settled into what was my first church and career path, she started looking at the humane society website every night, scrolling through pictures of, of the dogs they had there, of the puppies they had there. And, you know, wouldn't this be a great puppy? Wouldn't this, it, it was enough that like, after the first month of it, I started saying, oh, you're looking at your puppy porn again. <laughs> and I finally cracked. We were six months into the marriage, and I finally cracked and said, fine, we can get a dog, but I don't want a dog because I don't want to do the final visits. Mm -hmm. They're hard. They're uncomfortable. They're... I, I hate them. Yeah. But we got... We got our first dog, and there's both our, well, not both, all of our dogs to date have been rescues. We, we've gone to the shelters and we've rescued a dog. And our first dog, her name was initially Betsy, and she was this shy little blonde mix, not very big, like 20, 30 pounds, that was hiding in the back. And, you know, all the other dogs in the, the shelter running up and barking and wagging tails but this dog was hiding in the back. She just played on our heartstrings, so we took her for a walk. And uh, by the end of that walk, we knew we were coming home with a dog. That was Emma, and she was a great dog. She was the dog that we had. Well, both Emma and Scrappers were the dogs we had when we had the kids. And how quickly they adopted the kids in and seeing how Emma became protective and loving towards the kids. I've got a great photo somewhere where... You know, we were out for a walk, and Emma kept jumping up to the stroller and looking in the stroller, and, okay, he's okay, and then would run ahead, and then Aww. wait, and then jump up to the stroller, okay, he's okay, and then... She was, she was an amazing yeah. dog. A little hyperactive, but, you know, she was an amazing dog. We had to put her down right before the pandemic started. She got sick with, with cancer, and we had to put her down, and that that was right after Christmas, and... Bleh. Yeah. So, we've had three dogs now. 
we put the first two down that we got. We we loved them as best as we could. As their health failed, we had them for it was like twelve and thirteen years respectively, and they were they were rescues. So they were about two or three when we got them. Hmm. Pets are always hard, but that's that's one aspect of grief that I've been going through. The other one that's been been weird and hard has been that this week I found out that a close friend of mine from high school died and, and it looks like they died. It, it's just under a month, but you know, news travels weird and I haven't seen this person for over a decade. And, uh, I don't know. Have you had that happen where you've had someone from who's your age or that you knew die? Have you experienced that moment? Um, not close friends, but cousins or someone who I grew up seeing, like I saw them all the time. Oh, and, yeah. you know, when we were, when we were kids, we were close. I have a cousin, Ricky, who my son, Miles, looks, it's a spitting image of Ricky. It's really weird. We would play a lot when we were younger, but then we sort of grew apart. And for some reason, I was like intimidated by him when we got older, I think, because he was super cool. And I was very in tune with the fact that I was not cool. <laughs> I don't know. I really regret not talking to them. You're cool now. You're like hipster podcast. Yeah. At yeah. least that's what it feels like with the flannel this morning. Anyway, sorry. Picking on you. <laughs> well, um... So he died in a motorcycle accident. Ah. And he was one of two kids in the family. And it was just so devastating and uh, to to my cousin, to his sister. And um, the day we got the news, my mom and I went up there to their house. And I just hung out with Caitlin. And it was so surreal, like nothing had happened, kind of. Like we none of us really knew what we were doing there in a way, you know, and it would just hit us every now and then, or it's like nobody really knew what to do with themselves. The game, there was a game on, there was a, I think we were watching the Red Sox or something, and it was like, we're all here to be with you, but we can't really comprehend this loss, that he was so young, he was so young, he was like 22. Yeah. And uh, so, and then I had another cousin who overdosed Oh, and I knew him even less than Ricky. I didn't really know him very well, except for, like, Christmases and stuff. But it was still, like, it was just, how can that be that someone so young, someone so young can just not be here anymore? And it's just weird. Yeah, and the, there's a huge, huge element of that, too. I mean, even, you know, mid-30s, and there's still that element of, it's young. That's still very young, and it, no one has said it directly. There's no obituary for what happened, but it, it seems like this might have been something that was either self-inflicted or an overdose, I, and that's kind of reading between the lines with some of it. I'm not sure. Mm. You know, I haven't talked to the person in over a decade. But, I mean, there's grief and mourning for the loss of who they they were, who I knew them as and the potential that they had and that's that hits heavy and and they were someone close to me in life and it's hits you 
yeah, it, it, it hits in weird ways. It really does. I don't know if this is a weird question, but do you feel regret? How do you feel about that? There is regret. Yeah, and I, I talked with Melinda and talked with her through some of this. And some of that regret is when you and Melinda got to know me in that young adult program was a description that was used for who I was. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I was pretty rough around the edges. And the version of me that goes back into high school is a lot rougher. And so there's there's some regret of... I wasn't the best person. I wasn't caustic, but I was not refined. I wasn't... You were a bit of a bludgeon? <laughs> yeah, I I was. And not always intentionally, and not... You know, it's the angst years, the finding out who you are, and a lot of that refinement happened later on in life. And a lot of that refinement happened because of my wife, because of the program we were in, because of the hits and dings and the, the wear and tear on a soul that, that I have that have, no, wait a minute, maybe this isn't the best way to be. So there's regret in, in that, because it's... I was not the best person, and and that can be fair of anyone in high school, mm -hmm. where most of us are eh, angsty and and learning. Yeah, absolutely. So there's regret with that. From my perspective, I was never mean or cruel in that friendship, but I wasn't graceful the way I wish I could have been. There's regret that I didn't keep in touch in some way and there's always questions especially when it's something like this of if I had sent a message any time would that have made a difference and that's that's more the grief process than that's the the actual reality that's more yeah it's not logic talking no it's it's grief because it, it doesn't make sense. That person built their life. They built support networks around them. And and it's grief. Mm -hmm. you know, they were a life that, that was cut short. How do you sit with that? How do you wrestle with that? And mourning who I knew them as. And, and how do you... I mean, my the grief that I was talking about has, was a long time ago. But in hindsight, I can see things that I've taken away from it that have changed the way I treat people that I perceive as too cool for me or sort of scary, you know, trying to look past the way people dress or the way, the way they're wearing their hat <laughs> or the fact that they smoke cigarettes outside, <laughs> you know, it's like maybe, maybe that shouldn't matter. Maybe I should have just, next time, maybe I'm just going to go up and talk to that person and be my good old weird self and try, try harder. There's a forum that I'm a part of that is a collection of youth directors, pastors, leaders. And uh, in this forum, we talk about things that we're dealing with, questions, you know, support network. It's for youth leaders so that we can help each other. 
out of that grief, out of that reflection of, you know, how you view people and what you do with that, I have a rule for when I engage with things online, and that's, that's don't take the bait of the troll or the hater. Just don't engage. So yesterday, I saw a post on this forum, and it was asking about an issue that is similar to what I know my friend went through and dealt with. It's one that I've even changed my perspective on over the years. So I, I posted my opinion, I posted what I think that is the best way to navigate it, because it's one that is, is cultural and it's very sensitive topics in the church, and how do you navigate this as a church to love the person, but you know address that we do hold these things our sin, but we want to love you for who you are right now. Not who you could be, but who you are right now. And uh, Right. So I posted my stuff online, and then I posted under someone who, I mean, their their post started, sin is sin, and sin just needs to be addressed as sin up front, and you need to to just say no to sin. That was like the first line of their whole thing. It just rubbed me the wrong way with the whole conversation, and I dove into it, and, you know, keyboard warriored the trolls. Which, I mean, that, that breaks my, like, number two rule on the internet. Considering all this, talking with you, talking, I've talked with Melinda a lot about this, and it's just, grief does weird things. It has me breaking a rule of the internet of, okay, don't fight the haters, don't engage the trolls. And there's a part of me that feels very victorious because they, they can't reply yeah, that's kind of a win in internet, the the internet. And again, the, you know, there's a part of me that's going, ha, education. But, you know, that's not the right way to go about things. It's not the best version of me that's online at the moment. I tried to do it with love and grace, but... I definitely felt like fighting and yelling at someone. I guess that's a tough part of grief as well, because it, you want action, but what action is there to do? I kind of want to say that grief... Grief is one of the starting places for me down the roads that I have been on. Mm. Um, I think I shared this story before of my dear friend, who I respect and love and cherish. Um, she lost her baby. And she had already lost a couple and she lost it in one of the worst ways I think in my humble opinion is at an ultrasound where they're supposed to see the heartbeat and they didn't see the heartbeat there was a lot of other stuff going on for her too like she was just broken in so many ways with the, her life situation her and her husband moved back into her parents house like they they just they were they were kind of crushed my mom and I went to visit her and when I saw her she was so thin she looked so frail and fragile and she hugged my mom and she was just she's crying and she hugged me and I just felt like I was being torn in half I just I just wanted to sob but I, I couldn't bring myself to do it in front of her there was just so much pain and I felt 
How could he deal with this feeling for one person and then never mind all those people, all the people in the world that have such unbearable grief that rips you out inside out and, and just beats you against a post, you know, it's, it's, how can God handle that? And, and I felt in that moment that I loved her more than God, because if it was, if I was in charge, I would have spared her. I would have protected her. I would have kept her safe. And I think that's one of the moments for me that started me down the path that I'm on, that in hindsight, I know it's made me who I am and it's given me perspective that I need for the future, but I recognize it as a point in my life and other deaths that, that happened that weren't quite as deep for me, but deep also did the same thing. Just the incomprehensible feeling of pain and grief and how immense that feeling is. I kind of wish that somebody had told me that Jesus knows exactly how that feels. And not only the pain for her and for her loss, but for all the pain and all the loss. And how did he even stay sane on the cross? How did he even stay together in his mind? How did he not go completely insane? And, and it's unfathomable, unfathomable that he took all that on himself and that he loved her and loves her more than I ever could. And to ask for his heart for her and for his, her situation. I'm going to do that pastory thing that's, you know, left turn. Did you ever watch WandaVision on Disney Plus? I watched everything except the last episode. You didn't watch the last episode. I don't like when things end. Okay. So then you're familiar with this quote, because this quote, when I heard it, I, I had to rewind it like three times because it, it blew my mind. The implications that I never considered the theological application and implication. And, and it was one of those moments where pop culture figured out the answer. Huh. What is grief, if not love, persevering? Do you remember that line? Yeah. And that was Vision talking to Wanda. Hmm. And I had to hit rewind and just watch and watch that. We did an episode early on. I don't remember what we were talking about, but it, it got on to things with struggles with my, my grandmother before she passed. And I choked up in that episode. I, that was a hard episode for me. But the perspective is, is that was a hard episode because I still love my grandmother. You know, this week, and it's another one of those little weird blips. This week, my father, he showed up with a bunch of stuff because we're getting ready to move my grandmother into, um, it's not a nursing home, but it's like a, a staged assisted living where you start in an apartment and if you need to, they have medical facility. It, it, it's a great version of, I gotcha. yeah, she's moving into that in the next month or so. So the house is getting cleaned out and, you know, we're posting stuff of, okay, you know, who wants this? Who wants that? So my dad showed up with some of the things that, that we had asked for and, uh, it was random. I didn't ask for it, but it was one of those little things that even, you know, hit pause and 
caused an element of grief because well, I love my grandfather and it's uh, <laughs> it's a bunch of random marbles. Oh. So I I have a collection of marbles that I keep in a whiskey bottle, but those marbles that I just showed you that are in a different whiskey bottle, that was a random collection of marbles my grandfather had. Mm. So now they're in a whiskey bottle on on my shelf. And, you know, just the grief of who my grandfather was to me, the curiosity he instilled, the, the grief of who my other grandfather was to me and the, the steadiness he instilled. And that's love. And it's that grief. And this is, again, it's that perspective. Life adds these dings and dents to our spirit. But it's that grief that I look at that God has for us. That's how he looks at us in this state of grief because of how we fell. We were the crowning jewel of his creation, and now we're not. We're something broken. We're something sick. And he continues to love us. You know, it's that grief of spirit that, that held him to the cross. Which, I mean, that in and of itself, the, the act of love that that is, and what that means. That's one of the things I'm asking right now, is I don't understand, help me to understand, what the cross was, and what a sacrifice it was for you. So... And why? <laughs> I, honestly, the, the best way that I have come to understand the cross... It, it amazed me how this worked because it was like a light switch that just went boom and the cross made so much more sense to me it was when I had a kid mm. when when my son was born there was like a switch that flipped in my head and there, there was a uh, there was a disconnect when Melinda was pregnant where you know, I, I'm, I'm a father, but it just, it it's didn't. It's your fault. <laughs> yeah, it's my fault. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, I, I'm a father and it, it, it just it didn't feel real where it was, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm a father, but it's just my wife and I still, she's pregnant, she's getting bigger, she's getting grumpier and there are threats of murder. <laughs> so I may make it through this day, but it, it it was when Ray was born that that switch really flipped. Mm. And it was sitting there and going, I don't know how to describe any of that moment. It was surreal. You know, Mel was in labor for 24 hours and then it turned into an emergency C-section. And it, that there's a whole story behind that as well. But how they did it is they, they pulled him out, they cleaned him up. Brought him to her and I, mm. so she could have a moment as they were closing her up and finishing. And then they had me carry him to, um, I guess what would be like the nursery and the assessment. And, uh, you know, they got yeah. the goop in his eyes. They got him cleaned up. They got the vitamins and the you know, everything they needed to do for a newborn. But walking down that hall, mm. it was the longest walk I've ever experienced. It was all of 
20 feet. But for me, it took like three hours because I was holding this new life. And in holding that new life, it was, I will give anything, anything mm-hmm. for this this child to live, to have a fighting chance. And when I had a chance to reflect on that, to reflect on that moment, what was running through my heart and mind... There was like that still whisper that said, do you get it? Mm. Do you get it? And, and it just, it connected all the dots of that's who we are to God. We're still this newborn that he's walking down the aisle with, the, the hall with, and he has given everything. He, you know, post-resurrection, he has given everything. And, and that for me, made all those light bulbs go off where it's okay. The relationship that we have is a father to his child, a parent to their child with God. But we don't always connect that. Because, you know, sometimes as a child, parents are strict. And when they're strict, they can be scary. But it's because they don't want us to get hurt. You know, as as a parent... What wouldn't we give for our child? And we don't mm. understand that. We don't understand and that. They don't understand right. that in the same way. They have no idea. They think I'm being such a jerk. Because <laughs> right. they can't understand the danger. They don't understand the the pain that I'm trying to spare them. <laughs> and And it was those things that really, again, those light bulbs started going off. Everything started lining up with a lot of what, theologically I had been learning and trying to walk in and you know I'm glad I did seminary after I was a father because again going through seminary with that perspective I think it really helped me understand the nature of of God further especially as I was writing and presenting papers because I was in a position of the the background experience had burnt off a lot of the dross of religiosity. And so when I was going in seminary and the relig- religiosity they try to burn off of you in seminary had already kind of gone away. And I was in a spot to truly and deeply embrace what is faith and what it is to preach and live it, to understand it. Oh, it's good. It's good stuff. But where, where does that put you with some of the questions you felt? Because you and I have been talking a bit in the background, and so what's going on? So, the irony is not lost on me that as much as I've studied and learned over the past year about atheism and evolution, none of that matters. I love... Jesus. I've I've always loved Jesus. Did I ever share that dream I had about Jesus? I had two dreams. No. This was a long time ago, but I've held on to it forever. I had this dream of Jesus where there was a cross. And you know how like telephone poles have those spikes on either side so that the person can climb? So the cross was like that. It had handholds on either side and Jesus was wearing blue jeans and and no shirt and he climbed 
the cross, and he just wrapped his arms around the cross beam, and he just stayed there. Mm. And then I had this other dream where it was like a dusty, like what my imagination says Jerusalem would look like. Lots of browns (laughs) and sepias and stuff. But Jesus and a bunch of these people that were all looked that all dressed like him were like literally squatting in this like little circle chatting like like he did like they didn't want to sit on the ground, but they but they had nowhere else to sit. So they were just like squatting and he had a loaf of bread and we were just we were just talking and he and he was so he was happy and he he was just really relaxed. And I and what I took away from those dreams were that Jesus is knowable. Mm. He's approachable. And I want to know him. I think a lot of my problems have come from a a wrong idea of who God is. Lies, deceptions, hurt, damage, trauma that have turned God into something he's not. I still have some questions, but I'm trying to be open for God to show me through Jesus. Okay, then what are you like? If you're not a monster, then what are you like? Who are you? Convince me. That's what I've been asking God. Convince me of the cross. Convince me of sin. Convince me of what it means to really walk with you, what it means to be a Christian. And as far as all the other stuff, all the doctrines and theology with a capital T and evolution and all the stuff I learned, the verse that keeps coming back to my head is, and this is just a snippet and I realize it's part of a context, but I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm. That's where I am right now is I don't know. Which scripture is that? That's First Corinthians two two, okay. and it and, and you know Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and it is interesting you know as far as where I'm coming from, it's a very pertinent passage for me. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I think that's all I've really wanted for a really long time, is a demonstration. (laughs) And it's not even that I need proof that he exists, because I think he does. It's just, okay, but who are you? Show me who you really are, because I want to know your heart. Correct me where I've been wrong. Show me what you're really like. So that's kind of the pursuit I've been on, is trying to listen, trying to be open, turning over a new leaf, and trying not to go back to where I've been before, but to a new, new habits and seeing what happens and I, and I feel like every time I get distracted or every time questions come up or every time I kind of criticize the church in my head or try to critique things or 
get get into my old reformer self, I guess. Reformer, like, to make things better. I just sort of feel that verse from, from Corinthians, to resolve to know nothing, nothing except Christ. And then the other verse that comes to me a bunch is, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because so much of my Christianity has been just etched, engraved, like built on anxiety, built on, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Is this the right thing? Am I hearing from God? Is this God? Where am I going? Where am I supposed to be? Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I doing enough? And trying to push all of that away and go to that verse from, I don't, I forget where it is. It sounds kind of Matthew-y. But that verse, and then James 4, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And then Isaiah, return to me, and I will return to you. In a nutshell, in a long, big coconut of a nutshell, that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm sitting right now. So, it's easy for the church to create rules and systems, to create boundaries and teach boundaries because that's what we want but the relationship with christ is freeing boundary breaking it's it's more than we could ever expect or desire and where you're at is you're moving out of those rules you're moving out of those boundaries and that's scary it is, because you're finding that they're not as necessary as they were preached to be. And, you know, jump at me, yell at me if you have any thoughts as, as I go on, but as you move into that aspect of who Christ is intimately and personally, it changes how you view the work of the church. It changes how you view the relationship you have had with him against the relationship you're growing into with him and it's going to change how you view ministry it really is and it's an amazing place to be it's terrifying oh is it terrifying because it means a lot of the foundation you've been on and you know Lindsay you have 30 years of that foundation that you then started fighting against and rightfully so, because there are broken elements to the foundation. There's broken elements to the religiosity and ministry of, and I'm speaking in a broad nature, the church. Because the church is filled with humans. The church is filled with broken individuals who are trying to, to navigate. And the temptation of people in ministry and in the church is actually the same temptation we talked about two weeks ago and last week with purity culture. That it's easy to stand in a position and say, effectively, I am saint, I am saint, you are sinner. Yeah. That distinction is very easy to draw the line. But I believe what scripture calls us to is looking to Christ and saying, he is saint, he is saint, I am sinner, look where he is healed. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's been something I've even been trying to emphasize of, I, I think we've talked about it, where I have the theory of the holy man principle, where I say I'm in ministry and there's automatically this, you know, I am holier than now kind of principle that's applied to me. And it's, no, 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 I'm I'm a sinner. <laughs> Paul only got to write that he is chief of sinners because I wasn't born yet. And, uh, you know, you're, you're coming out of this looking at the world and here are the saints, here are the sinners. And you find out that we're all sinners. You know, we, we find out that that principle Kintsugi, that where Christ has repaired us, is more beautiful right. than... The Kintsugi, the repaired pottery with the gold streaking. Oh, yeah, yeah. We talked about that like two or three weeks ago, you know, and we find that I'm going to blank on the scripture, but Paul writes and says that we are like broken vessels. And and again, that, that fits into we are and where we are repaired is where the grace and love of Christ shows through. It's those areas that leak the grace. It's those areas that reveal Christ's love. But those are also the areas that within the church we want to hide because we want to be the saint and not the sinner we want to see the world and see the sin of the world but miss our own and and that's an easy temptation of the church again speaking broadly and once you get past that once you start seeing what is perceived from the religious view as the the ugly and the broken and realizing that we're in that same boat it's just my sins are different than theirs. And once we embrace Christ, we find that there's leaking of grace everywhere. It's messy. It's gushy. It's filled with the brokenness. But it's in that brokenness that we find, as you said, you know, that, that dream you had. We find Christ climbing the cross to us. And it's in that brokenness that he goes, I, I got this. I, I fixed this. And he releases us. It's in that brokenness that we then can sit. And I'm going to preach on this. So by the time this episode episode comes out, I will have preached on this. I'm preaching on when Jesus goes into the temple and he overthrows all the tables and chases out the, the money exchangers. Which is great because it's one of our stewardship Sundays. So it's the you know, talking about what what we have responsibility for and the finance of the church to a degree. And what I'm preaching on is that right after Jesus gets mad, right after those tables are overthrown, the scripture that follows in Matthew, I think I'm preaching on the one from Matthew, is that the temple is filled with people and children who come and sit with Jesus, who gather around him who fill this place of worship with the noise and messiness of family instead of the structure of worship. Hmm. And uh, I'm tying that back into Genesis 1 and the original blessing, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and fill it. And I'm tying that together in, in the idea and the grace that Jesus gives us the stewardship of the earth. Jesus gives us the stewardships of family. And it's loud, it's noisy, it's messy, because that's what he wants. It's not just a structure of worship. 
It's a structure of family together. It's a structure of people together. It's the worship of community together. I, I haven't finished the sermon, so that's the rough outline. Um, mm. But, I mean, that's that's what we break away from and into when we understand that, you know, the religiosity, the rules, the boundaries that the church teaches is to move us in this direction, but it's broken. Because we as the church are, are broken. We as the church are not the holy vessel. Jesus is that vessel. We're just trying to be the best conveyors of what he does. And not always well, unfortunately. Yeah. But when you get to that point where the, it transitions, it's beautiful because you find Jesus. You find the brokenness is fine because in the brokenness, that's where Christ comes out. In the brokenness, that's where we build community. In the brokenness, that's where the communion is built. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that help process with where you're at? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do think brokenness is definitely a huge part of it. Something that's encouraged me as far as you said conveyors, but a conveyor is kind of like someone who goes to A and brings A to B, but isn't themselves A. But in the scripture, I think, I can't remember where it says that, we are in Christ and Christ is in us and in him is our is our righteousness and wisdom and sanctification. So when we need those things, it's not that we're conveying, we're going to God and bringing them to people or bringing them to everybody else. It's like, okay, help me to simply access your wisdom in your sanctification and your righteousness help me to access it because i because we already have it if he's in us and we're in him in that weird circle i so i find that encouraging that it's not up to me to carry all of it from the throne room or or from the church to the world it's it's already there and that's pretty cool yeah and there's beauty in the brokenness. And at the end of the day, that's part of my reflection with the grief, where it's, you know what, it's it's stressful, it's hard. But there's still beauty in the brokenness I feel at the end of the day. And no, I don't always do that well, I don't always navigate that well, but, but there's Christ at the end of the day. There's Christ in my hope. There's Christ in my grief. There's Christ in my joy. And he doesn't leave me alone in these things. He gives me the tools of a wise woman who is my wife. I, I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I think anyone who knows me, I got lucky in who I married. But even now as she's finishing her counseling degree and... Even now, as I, I'm kind of going deeper into who I am, to have her and, and have the trust I do in her to navigate this with me. Because I come from a family who my dad sent me a, a meme the other day, and it was what the doctor asked me if, if anyone in my family suffers from insanity. 
And the answer to it was, no, no one in my family has any complaints about our insanity. We're all fine. <laughs> but I come from a family where, you know, we're, we're going to resist the, the counseling sessions. We're going to resist going and speaking to someone just because that's who we are. But the grace that is, is my wife, the grace that is what God has provided for me is, yeah, I may resist that, but I have someone who's going to push me. I have someone who's going to drive me further. And in that, drive me further to Christ as I look at who I am in that brokenness. You know, the grace of, of the churches I've worked for and being able to examine the brokenness there. The, the grace of the ministry that is working with teenagers who are up front about their issues. It takes a, a lot less to get to the heart of an issue with a teen than it does with an adult. I mean, I'm in my mid-30s and I'm still shoveling the, the garbage but a teen can be upfront with what they feel, especially Generation Z. They're a lot more open to, to their feelings and understanding what they need. And again, that just points to Christ, the brokenness and the redemption that is there. That's good <laughs> word. <laughs> I thank you. Yeah, thank you. This has been a, a good episode this has been good to be able to to have a friend to talk with about it to be able to reflect on the different paths that we're each on and, and the connections and the ties into faith thank you it's been what i needed to so i'm glad we have this forum <laughs> and you may not think or feel this but Lindsay, the uh the challenges you walk through the things that you are wrestling with it's a bit of a selfish statement, but walking through them with you helps to make me a better person. Hmm. It does. That's the selfish side of things in saying that. But I appreciate that you are open with me, that you are willing to speak to these things that you're, you're going through. And uh, I value that. I really do. I think that's what we're supposed to do. It is. I think that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> it is. And I mean, that's that's what we wanted to show in this podcast is this is who we're supposed to be. It's supposed to be community. It's supposed to be life together. And if that's coffee in the mornings or, you know, whatever it is, it's to be life together. Loving and grace and showing what support we can. And from my perspective, from my background and belief, it's sitting in that grace and love will do more in the end than shouting sinner, sinner, sinner. Yeah. Because shouting sinner, 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 I'm only pointing to myself. Yeah. So, thank you, Lindsay. Thank you for, for listening to me, but thank you for being open as well. I, I really do appreciate these times. Same, 100%. Thank and you. One last thing before we go. We've only got one more episode left in October. That's crazy. Yeah. Halloween? Do you want to do a Halloween episode? Oh, I was thinking we'd talk about scary things. Actually, yeah, we did talk about that. We did talk that we would do a Halloween episode. So then, yeah, we'll do a Halloween episode. And then we'll do Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So in two episodes, we're going to do Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. All right. 
And that'll be like November 1st, which will be good because that, that puts us into, it's been, it'll be just shy of a year. I think it was like a November 11th or 12th that we put the first episode out. Wow. Yeah. Can you believe we've been doing this for a year? <laughs> I know. I was just looking in my folder of all the episodes, all the finished episodes I have collected. I'm like, that's a lot of episodes. Got a lot there. I had to move them off of my hard drive. They were taking up a lot of space. <laughs> so now I have a hard drive external that's devoted to this podcast, which just seems surreal. But all right. Yeah. So we'll talk spooky spectaculars next week in the Hitchhiker's Guide yeah. to the Galaxy in two weeks. All right. You all right. go have a good Saturday. You too. All right. We'll catch you later, Lindsay. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The 42 Podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe. And if you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter to add your voice to the conversation. Thank you.